we either have to eat and be cold or be warm and starve. That's the way it is. The heating is switched off and just put on occasionally when it's particularly cold. Is that because of the rising prices? Because of the rising prices. I did a £10 food shop in 2012 for the Sunday people. Mm -hmm. And I redid exactly the same food shop last weekend and it came to £17.11. Mm -hmm. 2022 has been dubbed the Year of the Squeeze by the Resolution Foundation. In April, soaring energy bills will collide with tax increases for working people. Last month, grocery prices rose at their fastest rate in eight years, and inflation is at its highest level in almost three decades. We've definitely experienced a sharp increase in the demand for food bank services. People are definitely finding that their money's not going as far anymore, and just the increase in food and fuel costs is starting to bite. I spoke to a lady the other day there who was in dire straits and at the age of 68 had to ask for help with food for the first time in her life. What we're really concerned about is that not only are numbers rising steeply, but the complexity of issues that people are facing. Problems with benefits, debt, housing, etc. It really feels like the system is falling apart. So, when the media talk about the cost of living crisis, what do they actually mean? How did we end up in a country with more food banks than branches of McDonald's? And what can the government do to make sure everyone can afford life's essentials? We need to acknowledge the, the utter inequality and unevenness across this country and even within regions and within towns themselves. Our government is in a complete state of denial about the impact of austerity policies on poor people and on inequality. Benefits need to keep up with inflation, otherwise people see a real drop in their income and this pushes people further into poverty, increases the likelihood of debt, etc. Also, people need to be able to access emergency funds easily and quickly. At the very least, we need to rethink our benefit system to ensure that it provides people with a living income. Similarly, we need to ensure that people earn a living wage when in work. More must also be done to keep rents and utility bills affordable. We simply can't let this cost of living crisis increase homelessness and destitution even further. Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week we're asking, how do we make sure everyone has enough to live on this spring? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by returning friend of the pod, Alfie Sterling, Chief Economist and Director of Research at the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Alfie. Hi there. Thanks for being with us. And I'm also really excited to be joined by Sabine Goodwin, coordinator of the Independent Food Aid Network. Hi, Sabine. Hi there. Good to be here. Thanks so much, both of you, for being with us. So let's start by talking about the events of the last few months. So as I said in the intro, we've heard a lot about inflation recently. It's climbed to an almost 30-year high and is expected to rise even more once energy bills soar in April. Let's start with you, Alfie. Can you explain what inflation means for people day to day and what causes inflation to rise? Yeah, sure. I mean, and obviously this has been around in the news a lot lately and a lot of people are thinking about it in relation to you know their day-to-day -day spending and the impact on essentials or whatever else people are spending their money on. I think, I mean, so in very simple terms, inflation is the rate at which prices are changing in the economy. But one of the big problems of just sort of grasping that concept is, and this is the case actually a lot in economics in general, is 
we tend to focus probably a bit too much on just single averages, you know, a single number. Inflation is really high at the moment. And on average, that's, you know, over 5% now and it's expected to get to above 7% in the coming weeks and months, which as you said, is, is um, the highest rate in several decades. But actually, when you ask, what does that mean for people? Well, it all depends actually on the types of things, goods, services that we all buy. And we all buy slightly different things and different items will have different changes in price. Some things, in fact, the price might have gone down over the last few months. And some things will have gone up much, much faster. You know, for example, the energy price cap being one that we're about to all experience. So I think that's one thing is that the average may not reflect what people are actually feeling. And that will really, it's very hard to capture that in a single sentence or a single number because it, it really will be bespoke to the types of things that each of us buy in our routine lives. The other point is that it also doesn't capture everything that feeds into price changes. So it tends to track goods on a like-for-like basis across time. So if you were to buy the same thing again and again, the rate of inflation on average describes how that price might change. But what it doesn't do is tell you, well, what happens if a particular good isn't available? You know, for example, a supermarket essential branded food item just goes off the shelf for a few weeks and you're forced to buy a more expensive item. Official headline inflation does not typically capture the impact of that on on your spending. And yet that's a really important, you know, the availability of different goods is a really important factor in all this. So I don't know if I've answered the question (laughs) entirely, but I've sort of talked around why it's quite hard actually to get from a single numerical number of inflation to that lived experience. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking that it was maybe the first time I've heard anyone really clearly just simply explain what inflation is. Um, So thank you. And what a skill. Just off the back of what you were saying there, what measures does the government have in its tool belt to be able to do anything about this and kind of affect inflation? And is it already using any? Yeah, so I think there are probably three broad approaches that government can take. It can either try and intervene in the specific driver that is causing inflation. And in this case, that's very tricky for a single government and very tricky for the UK because the causes are international and global. A lot of it is coming from international energy and gas in particular markets where we've got lots of volatility in the price. And that, again, is due to the fact that in a nutshell, demand for energy is just exceeding supply. And there's a lot of different factors that are feeding into that. But certainly, it's not all within the control of this government. So that's sort of like one approach might be to intervene in the driver. That's very tricky. The second is at a sort of macro level to try and offset the causes of inflation. And that's what the central bank, the Bank of England, is trying to do at the moment. And the, the usual approach to that is to raise interest rates, because what that does is it reduces spending, takes heat out of the domestic economy which although in this case, it's not tackling the driver inflation, it will to some extent offset it. But that comes at potentially a really high price because it reduces uh, spending in the economy that in turn will reduce earnings and income. And it will actually make that pinch squeeze all that bit harder. I mean, I I happen to think actually that this is a measure that we're really making a mistake on at the moment. The Bank of England's plan to raise interest rates is, is misguided and could cause a lot more harm than good. And then I think if you like the third area that government can intervene on is less about inflation per se. But I think when we talk about these things, we often think about, well, what's government going to do for people? What is it going to do to protect people? And this, of course, has been in most recent weeks and months, this conversation about what's government going to do to protect people from the energy price rise in particular. And government obviously announced a package and perhaps we can come on to that in a bit. But there's also just the general response from government, which will also affect the cost of living. So it won't affect inflation 
directly, or at least not in the near term, but things like taxation, national insurance, but also national minimum wages and the value of our of our welfare system are all things government can obviously do to try and, if not tackle inflation directly, try and cushion or mitigate or offset the effects on families across the country. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And yes, let's definitely come back to talking more about some of those specific interventions in a bit. Staying in the present for now, we talked because we talked a lot about the rise in energy bills in the last episode. So I just want to touch on this briefly, even though, of course, it's going to be such a dramatic rise. When the impact of this hits in April as a result of the gas supply issues and the increase in the energy price cap, how do we think that this is going to affect the price of food and energy in the UK, especially, obviously, since we recorded the last episode, the situation in Ukraine has escalated, Russia has invaded, and much of the rest of Europe is responding with sanctions. So coming first to you, Alfie, where is this going to lead us? What has changed? And how do you expect that this is going to exacerbate the existing supply chain crisis? So I think it's worth, obviously, just you know, acknowledging that the last 12 months have already been extremely tough. We've already seen inflation across the piece rising, and we've seen energy within that rising in particular. You know, there was a rise in the cap last October, and that's already hurting. People are already feeling that. In terms of what's to come, I mean, unfortunately, it is going to get worse before it gets better. That is what all the indicators are showing us. And there's sort of two elements to that. One is the direct impact on, you know, for example, household bills, as that energy price cap goes up, which of course isn't that isn't the cause in and of itself. That is in some way a policy response, a choice by government on how to deal with higher prices in the market. And in this case, it's about the choice they've made is to pass that cost on to consumers. So to raise the price that retail energy providers can charge us for every unit of energy. And that's one way it'll directly feed into all of our spending and we'll basically end up spending a lot more for what we for the same thing that we were spending this time last year. Or in some cases where we can't afford, where people can't afford it, literally going without, you know, not warming their homes, not cooking as much as they were before, which I think again is the thing to really remember beneath all these numbers is that quite acute impact on people's lives in many instances. The other way in which this affects our everyday lives is then the knock-on effect because it's not just energy that's rising. There's prices that are rising. There's prices across the board, but actually energy does also affect things right across the board as well because most goods and services to some degree, require energy to either distribute or deliver. And so that's why it's one of the reasons why there's a bit of a lag between you initially get an energy price rise, but then inflation on average rises through the system and carries on doing that for a few more months. Because as companies get through their stocks, you know, as companies get through their stocks of what they're selling and then replace them with new stocks, it's the new stocks that come in that are more expensive because of the energy that's required to produce and move them about the country. So it's that second effect that was going to linger now for, for, for some time as inflation moves through the system. Okay. I wanted to come to you, Sabine, just to ask, inflation, as we've said, hit 5.5% last month, but anti-poverty campaigner Jack Monroe said that the inflation rate only measures the average rise in prices. So, Sabine, do you think that the inflation rate that we're talking about here isn't telling the whole story? Definitely so. I mean, people are feeling the pinch in terms of the bare essentials, and those tend to be more expensive. So obviously, the energy prices and food prices going up are going to really impact on people who only are wanting or needing to spend money on those items, because that's how they exist. And, and the fact that things are so expensive already, and we're seeing a rising level of need for emergency food aid before the increases we're expecting in April, 
is really alarming indeed. People were struggling a great deal before the pandemic even started. And I think it's always important to go back to that and think about the fact that, you know, 43% of households on universal credit, according to DWP data, were food insecure before March 2020. And so what, you know, what we're seeing now is crisis upon a crisis upon a crisis. And, you know, the levels of chronic poverty that our members are reporting are going up, as in, you know, people who've been living with poverty for a very, very long time, but are now reaching destitution. But we're also hearing about people coming back who maybe have got on their feet since the start of the pandemic or as a result of the uplift to universal credit, maybe. But now, you know, combined with the cut to universal credit and these cost of living increases, they're now, you know, needing to get help from a food aid provider. And it's desperately sad to see that. You know, I could go on forever and ever on, on the new types of people that we're seeing or hearing about needing help. You might never have um, contemplated being in that situation before. Yeah, no, I was just going to say we've had a lot of, uh, we've discussed this quite a lot on the podcast, you know, as you say, just kind of the ever expanding pool of people who are being pushed into poverty and destitution by the the policy changes and, and other changes that we're seeing. And I wanted to ask you, Sabine, in particular about the increase in national insurance in order to fund the social care system and who you think that tax hike will hit and whether you think it's a good idea. Well, it's going to hit um, everybody, isn't it, obviously. But what we're seeing is more and more people who are in middle incomes, who are maybe donated to a food bank previously, who are actually now needing to turn to the local food bank that um, they used to support. But it, any increase or any increase in tax is going to always impact people on the lowest incomes first. And, you know, that's the last thing they can manage to have yet another tax imposed on them when there's so many other price hikes going on. But I think the question of how our society is organised in general and how we prioritise ensuring that everyone is able to to afford the bare essentials is what, you know, really needs to be tackled at the heart of this. Because, you know, something's awry, isn't it, that, um, you know, our society muddles along in this way. And, you know, we hit a point like this with a cost of living crisis and, you know, zero safety net for a great deal of people in our midst. You know, we also know that if we don't attend to this, what we're going to be seeing is a long term impact on people's mental and physical health, which will be devastating to, to not only those human beings, but to society as a whole. Just last week, we published a report alongside Joseph Rantree Foundation and mental health social worker Tom Pollard on the mental health impact of poverty and food bank use. And the testimonies of the, those people affected are devastating, powerful words from everyone. And that's just a fraction of the people who are now having to use charitable food aid. And of course, there are impacts in terms of people's physical health of prolonged food insecurity or even short term food insecurity. You know, we're hearing of people not eating so that their children can eat, people eating whatever they have just left in their cupboards. And so we know that we're storing up a kind of ticking time bomb in terms of both physical and mental health and the cost to the NHS, to society as a whole, of people being sort of put in a position of being unable to manage as, as regular citizens in our society because the system 
is so at fault. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make economic or moral sense in the long term. Mm, and I know this is this is something that Neff has worked on and talked about for a long time, the idea of the, the safety net um, and what needs to be done to rebuild it. Alfie, just to come to you on that point. So the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, recently said that the UK should implement the national insurance increase to fight inflation. Do you agree with that? And also, what do you think of other options, like, for example, tax rises on the wealthy? Would that be a good solution? So I think the IMF were completely wrong on this. And it's ironic, really, they really went out on a limb because even the government are not raising national insurance to tackle inflation. They're doing it. And I think to some extent, you do say them at face value. It is about raising funding um, for the NHS and for social care. There's a whole separate debate as to whether or not they're spending that money effectively or indeed whether it's enough. But that is broadly what is happening. It's not about tackling inflation. And if it were, it'd be even more misguided for some of the things I talked about earlier, which is that inflation is not caused by the domestic UK economy. It's not caused by people going out and spending too much. So taxing people and making life even harder is not only causing pain, but not even tackling the root cause of the problem. But I think, you know, in terms of what could be done instead, I think there are probably two areas to think about. One is, as you mentioned, taxing wealth, because I I think it's quite important here to say, you know, we can't be opposed to taxes of all kind, or the idea that we all need to contribute in order to provide good quality public services, which of course, in the end, help with the cost of living and actually invariably are very progressive. If you make services free at the point of use, it's often those on lower incomes that benefit disproportionately. So raising taxes per se is not shouldn't be the key culprit here. But there are choices government could have made that are better tax rises. So it could have um, more effectively taxed income from wealth. And in particular, that's you know raising capital gains tax, raising dividend income tax further than they did, thinking about inheritance tax. You could easily raise the sort of sums they've raised from national insurance that way. That's sort of 12, 15 billion pounds. But actually, even if you just limited yourself to national insurance, they didn't make the right reforms. A much better reform, for example, would have been to get away from a really perverse feature of national insurance, which is that if you earn more than £50,000, your marginal rate of tax in national insurance drops from 12% down to 2%. So it's the opposite of what people might assume or expect. If you're on higher income, your marginal tax rate goes down. Why? What is the rationale for that? It's actually it's sort of a long-seated thing, which is that the idea of a kind of a contributory system. And in the end, everyone's only going to use the NHS a certain amount, and therefore we should try and cap how much they pay into it. It kind of goes right back to after World War II, the idea of a contributory welfare and pension and health system, mm. which of course is, today is not the case. All it looks like now is just a regressive tax. And way to equalise that, you know, way to ask those earning more than £50,000 to pay the same rate of tax on those earnings above 50k, that would also raise about 12 billion pounds, which is the about amount of money that they're trying to raise from everyone else for these latest reforms. So, so clearly there are there are other options on the table. Yeah, I mean that is shocking. <laughs> I feel like I've been doing this podcast for a long time, but uh that that's something that's really kind of taken me by surprise. Um perhaps I'm naive, but wow. So these kind of more recent changes that we've discussed are taking place against a backdrop, as you've both named, of much longer term issues in the UK economy. And I want to spend a little bit more time kind of drawing those out. So let's start with you, Alfie. Why are people in the UK so exposed to economic shocks like this one in a nutshell? What have we not said yet? What are we missing? Well, the first thing is not so much something we've not said, but it's just to reiterate, because we talked a lot about price, right, and the changes in price. In order for the cost of living to become a crisis, it needs to exceed incomes. 
So the crisis bit comes when people's incomes have not kept up with those prices. I think that's a really key point to remember, because there are two sides to this. There is the amount we're paying for the goods and services we need for our day-to-day essentials, but there's also how much earnings and income we get in order to spend on those things. Um, and you need to look at both. And we talked about the former so far, but I think when you look back in time, it's the latter. It's the UK's income crisis, if you like, as opposed to the cost of living crisis, where I think we really need to poke a bit deeper. Um, and within that, there are a number of a number of elements. So we've gone through the longest period of effectively stagnant pay growth since 2008 in centuries, you know, literally centuries now. And that is expected to continue. We're not expected to get back to 2008 levels of average earnings until 2027. So that's this whole idea of, you know, we, we hear the government, we hear Rishi Sunak, we hear Boris Johnson talking about a high pay, high productivity economy. We literally have the opposite in the UK. And part of that is an international trend. But then even when you compare across countries, the UK has lower pay, lower productivity than France, Germany, the US. So it's a really particular problem here in this country around the kind of precarity of work, low pay, insecurity. That's the earnings bit of it. The second bit is the safety net and the income that government puts in place to protect people, you know, as a safety net to catch people when they fall through tough times or indeed when the country as a whole goes through a tough time. And again, through deliberate policy decisions, we have eroded that over the best part of a decade. I mean, we had this whole debate around the £20 uplift, for example, in universal credit, where, you know, government temporarily increased payments by about 20 quid a week, £1,000 a year. And there was a whole debate as to whether or not that should stay or not. And the, the framing around that was, well, you know, it's not a cut because we just gave it in this pandemic. But if you step back, £14 billion was taken out of the social security system since 2010. So going into the pandemic, we actually had the weakest safety net in the UK's history. And it was something like the third or fourth weakest out of nearly 40 odd advanced economies. And so when you step back in that context, actually the £20 uplift debate feels quite, though important, it feels quite trivial and missing the point, which is that the system as a whole is woefully inadequate, you know, both by our own historical standards and by global comparison. Sabine, what do you think about that? I mean, I was going to come to you to ask about the, you know, universal credit. I know you'd mentioned it already. And as, as Alfie said, it's supposed to be a safety net for people, but payments aren't increasing to keep up with inflation. But I guess, would you agree with that, that perhaps getting bogged down in the debate around the uplift is, is not the right thing to focus on? We should actually be going further back. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the £20 was much needed in terms of the levels of universal credit in any case. And, you know, talking about it as a kind of temporary COVID only needed because of COVID was not accurate at all. As I as I said, you know, we know that universal credit was already too low. The payments were inadequate and not matching the cost of living before the uplift happened. So, you know, arguing about whether £20 uplift should be removed or not was neither really neither here nor there, to be honest. We know that 43% of UK households and universal credit were food insecure before April 2020. So goodness knows what's happening now. Um, and we won't get that data till 2024 in terms of this time period. But, you know, what we're seeing in terms of food bank use, which is, of course, the extreme end of food insecurity levels, is extremely worrying. And, you know, we're seeing levels of needs that are at the point of what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, which we saw a very sharp increase in people needing emergency food provision. But, you know, we need to think, as Alfie said, about the social security system as a whole. 
just I always feel it's really important to to remember that 2.1 million people on legacy benefits did not ever receive that £20 uplift. So they've been struggling often in, you know, with chronic poverty levels throughout the last two years. And just there seems to be no chance of them any getting any compensation on that, as we learned last week. And we need to be thinking about but what is the purpose of a safety net? The purpose of a safety net is to ensure that people can manage if they hit hard times, if they're sick or disabled. And it's not there to be eroded and it's not there for people to be falling into destitution as a result of having to rely on that social security safety net or lack of it. Mm, I think it's really interesting, this idea of kind of, I guess, misdirection when we're having some of these conversations and like that we're looking at the wrong thing when actually we need to be going much further back and having a more holistic conversation. It also made me think, Alfie, about the the government announcement around the rebate on council tax for some tenants, but then also on the other hand, the removal of pandemic protections for renters. And as we know, rents are rising at the fastest rate in five years. So uh, just taking that as an example, how does housing impact the cost of living? But also broader than that, how is what's going on there an example of other things that we're seeing at play in the economy that perhaps we're not paying enough attention to? I mean, I think just to take the council tax rebate point, I mean, this was an example of where government managed to tick all four of the wrong boxes in one single policy intervention. It was too little, too late, too complicated, and poorly targeted. You know, the idea that 1991 property values and the council tax bans those generate and somehow a good proxy in 2022 for people's income need is ridiculous, quite frankly. And the only reason government went back to those council tax bans was because they were trying everything they possibly could to avoid using the one system that actually would be able to get cash to people, which was our safety net, our means-tested benefit system. And they didn't want to do that because of this whole £20 uplift point and the fact that they didn't want to get into a position where they might have to make something like that permanent. So it is cynical and political, a lot of this stuff. I mean, in terms of cost of living and housing you know, the relationship for housing more generally, it's a huge one. I mean, if you look at the last 10, 12 years, it's only after housing costs that you really see the kind of the rising inequality. So it's after housing costs that the sort of poorest 20% or so of the population have actually started to see their income, the disposable income stagnate. And when you don't consider housing costs, actually the picture looks a bit rosy, you know, artificially rosy, of course, because a big portion of that income is going on housing. And of course, that gets us back to, you know, housing policy, whether that's rent or, or delivery of social housing or interest rates, etc. But yeah, no, it's a really, really big part of the picture, the decisive part of the picture, actually, when it comes to the broad look at inequality. Interesting. So we've got inflation, tax rises, benefit cuts, stagnating wages, high rents, soaring energy bills. It's not a lovely picture, really, is it? Last year at NEF, we forecast that a third of the UK population will be living below a socially acceptable living standard this year. And you've both added a lot of kind of colour to that statistic throughout this conversation. Sabine, let's start with you. You've described this as a perfect storm turning into a flood of need, which I felt was very apt. And I just wanted you to tell us a little bit more about how you've seen this manifest in your work. Yeah, absolutely. Just to reflect that we really see that more and more people are coming to our food banks um, who are needing um, help, even though they're in work. And I think it's just so important that we keep talking about that and reflecting on that because there's such an old strong argument made that work will get you out of poverty. 
And that simply isn't the case anymore. And also just to think about not just the level of wages, but job security and how that impacts on people because they may be earning an adequate hourly wage, but if they don't have enough hours and if they don't know when those hours are coming from, then, you know, they'll be needing help for sure. Mm. So again, it's, it's much more complex, you know, than uh, as with what Alfie was saying, that the picture is much more complex. It, yeah, you know, it's just it, just to reflect on, you know, this kind of like the government are making this argument that you can get out of this if you work. And it's just not true. And we know that a huge number of people on universal credit are already in work. And of course, some people can't work. And if they can't work, they need a safety net. But in terms of the question of this perfect storm turning into a flood of needs, I mean, you know, we knew and, and so many of us were saying that, you know, whatever you do, don't cut the £20 from universal credit, because exactly as we just said, that level was too low at the start of the pandemic in any case. And so with that cut in universal credit, you know, immediately started to see levels of need going up and then combined now with obviously the cost of living crisis, things are just getting worse and worse. And what that feels like for our members is desperate, actually. You know, I'm thinking from their perspective, of course, you know, for people who are experiencing this, that this is what you need to focus on first and foremost. But just for a moment, I'm going to just speak, if it's okay, about the from the perspective of, you know, our members and what I hear regularly in our meetings. And it's, you know, not knowing what where to turn now in terms of helping people. How can they? find a way to help people now because you know levels of support from the public are dwindling there isn't that kind of split spirit that we saw at the start of the pandemic where people were able to help or people in lockdown were volunteering there's a shortage of volunteers now because you know people are back to work or you know there isn't that sense of solidarity perhaps and you know what we're hearing is some of our members actually having to cut back the size of their normal food parcel because they don't have the supply to give out. They're having to consider rationing their food parcels. And you know this is before April, and that's what's so striking is that what we're hearing is sort of levels of you know deep concern and confusion really as to how how can they cope when they know it's inevitable that things are going to get even worse. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about specifically was I know that Food Aid Network are advocating for something called cash first approaches. What what are these and, and why are they important? Yeah, so the Independent Food Aid Network has been working to co-develop what we call cash first referral leaflets in local authorities across Scotland, England and Wales and starting to work in Northern Ireland too. And these are resources really to help people who are facing financial crisis and money worries and anyone supporting them, so support workers, feedback volunteers and so on, to navigate their way to uh, cash-first options. So options that will help them access any existing financial entitlements and maximise their income in the hope that they won't need charitable food aid. And our mission as an organisation, the Independent Food Aid Network's vision, is of a society without the need for charitable food aid. And the way, you know, we advocate for this is by calling for what we call a cash first approach to food insecurity, which means the emergency food parcel is is really the last resort. And what we need to be seeing, what we need to be advocating for, and we need to be you know, making sure happens in every community is that people are able to access the support they need to maximise their income before they end up at a food parcel, because oftentimes people are 
ending up finding that their way to a food bank before they've been able to access the right support. We're not saying for one minute that social security payments are adequate or wages um, match the cost of living or that job security isn't a problem. But we do know that there is a kind of mix up going on at a local level where people aren't necessarily getting the support they need in the first instance to access the kind of support that would mean they they might access the income that would prevent them from needing charitable food aid. Mm, I think it's a really helpful and important way to think about it and certainly a powerful policy intervention. Over the pandemic, we saw, again, as we've discussed, there was, you know, one section of society were actually able to save money as they were working from home in secure jobs, while another, the majority of folks we've been talking about in this podcast so far, missed out on shifts at work and ate into any savings that they had. So Alfie, just to come to you, when it comes to the cost of living crisis, is it affecting us all equally? I think you're going to say no, but um, talk to me more about that. Yeah. And, and just to go I mean, on Sabine's point, I think it's absolutely right, you know, that we should be in a situation where the government's policies and the government's safety net should be enough. Like in one of the richest economies in the world, our government should be able to prevent people falling into the type of destitution that we see. And it's not so much even, I think, to a degree, it's not so much necessarily just food versus income. It's also just whether, you know, why it is as a society we have to rely on charity as effective and as impressive and as essential, unfortunately, as it is now, to play the role that actually government should be stepping up to in the first place, whether that's local or national. But in terms of, you know, cost of living in general, inequality, I mean, you know, you're right, Aisha, it's very much not affecting everyone equally. You know, prices are rising, actually, for the most part, for a lot of people quite broadly across the spectrum. And that price rise is actually, you know, it's meaningful for both rich and poor. I think the point about certain goods becoming no longer available is particularly um, meaning big price increases for lower income households, the type of point that, you know, Jack Monroe has made. But it goes back to this point, which is that cost of living only becomes a crisis when it exceeds income. And it's certainly not exceeding it for the richest, but it is for the poorest. And this is something that we've seen, again, this isn't a new feature of the UK economy. You know, we've seen inequality rising over decades. People talk about it sort of slowing down or stopping over the last 10 years, probably not people on this call or perhaps people listening to this, but it is talked about actually inequality becoming less of a thing in the last 10 years. But that's actually also not really the case, especially when you consider after the cost of housing and rent we've talked about earlier. But if you just look at the last two years, there was modelling by the New Economics Foundation that showed, you know, just since this government pledged to level up, the poorest 50% of households have on average in real terms become poorer in just two years. And, you know, it's not good enough to say that that's all just because of the pandemic, because a big part of that is how did government respond? And the points you made around, you know, certain people, those on, you know, less secure jobs, you know, fixed term contracts, or just were, you know, out of work at the wrong time, they all missed out by and large from things like furlough and self-employed income protection scheme, whilst actually those on higher incomes who had more secure employment were either able to work from home or their employer wanted to keep them in the role and, and was able, willing to pay you know, some of the overhead costs of furlough. So the, certainly the pandemic has been as aggravated inequality, but the government's response hasn't mitigated that. It has, you know, the furlough scheme was effective and did a lot for a lot of people, but it reflected the pattern of inequality we already had and didn't reverse that when perhaps that might be an opportunity to do so. Mm, again, I think that's a really helpful clarification, although perhaps not entirely unsurprising. A final, a final question for you both. Citizens Advice have had more people asking for help than at any point since the first days of the pandemic. 
local elections are going to take place in May and the Guardian analysis has found that swathes of so-called former red wall seats will be among the hardest hit by the squeeze on living standards. My question really is, are we seeing a sort of breaking point in the future? How long do you both think this can go on? And what will be the political consequences of the moment that we're facing? So just a small final uh, question to wrap it up there. (laughs) Whoever wants to go first, have at it. I think just continuing actually on from what I what I was saying about our work with the, in communities around the cash first approach, I sincerely believe that this change will happen, that momentum for change will happen from a local level up, and that you know we'll be able to influence the systemic change upstream through building momentum on the ground. And I you know feel quite hopeful that well, there's no question that things are going to get worse before they get better but I do think we are about to reach breaking point but I I do feel optimistic that is going to come soon and what we're seeing certainly in terms of our work with co-developing the cash first referral leaflets is a real interest from many different quarters particularly from local authority teams in changing this and you know coming up with solutions that have a long-term impact and the realization in terms of the work that I'm involved is that charitable food aid is a stopgap, is a sticking plaster, is not a sustainable solution. That is happening. People are realizing you know, in positions of power that this is not this is not a sustainable solution. And income-based solutions and cash-first solutions are paramount. And I think through that developing in, in more and more areas and that momentum building in, in local areas across the UK, that I'm hopeful that will eventually feed upstream and you know, things will change because there's just a, a serious lack of interest in a, in having an equal society from central government. And unless, you know, we feed that desire back to um, to the government, then nothing's going to change. In terms of um, how we manage this, how we address the poverty driving the needs for food banks is by thinking about um, overhauling the whole system. We very much support the New Economics Foundation's living income campaign. We know that it makes sense. You know, we need to be ensuring that everyone is able to afford the bare essentials in life. And we can't, you know, be fully functioning in society where, you know, a large proportion of our citizens aren't able to even barely scrape by. And many of them are being forced into destitution by the system that we have in place. So it's overall systemic change that we need. We need social security payments that match the cost of living. We need wages that also match the cost of living combined with job security. And we need to be ambitious in making these changes and not just sort of let this situation where the gap between the have-nots and the haves is getting bigger and bigger by the second. Alfie, what say you? How long can this go on? Well, I I think in part we're already in a period of turbulence and political revolution and we're feeling the effects of people basically saying this is too much and it just may not always be coming in the form that we perhaps wanted it to as you know progressive broadly the left you know because i think brexit was actually in part a result of these struggles with cost of living because it's not just a 2022 phenomenon and it's not just a phenomenon of the pandemic it's something you know a lot of people never felt like they ever left the financial crisis in terms of the recession that came after that and, you know, and brexit was one of the features, one of the symptoms that came out of that, you know, Trump 
again, I think a similar thing going on there. So I think we're in a period of, we're in a moment, I think, and a lot of it boils down to, you know, the failure of globalization, the failure of neoliberalism, if you like, to provide a good settlement for people. And I think that's why part of the response now needs to be, you know, setting out what is the minimum quality of life that people should be entitled to, actually, and that government has a should be held account to provide. I mean, just going back to that statistic you mentioned, Aisha, the kind of one in three people now living in a household in the UK where they don't have enough to meet all essentials. That's more than 21 million people, 7 million children. Like This is extremely high. This is not a marginal or niche issue. The cost of living is a mainstream catastrophe. It's a mainstream crisis. And that does indicate that this is going to keep going in terms of this moment will get dragged out. And I think, you know, voters, the electric society, even perhaps not through elections, will, will constantly be asking for solutions. And the one sort of thought I'd end with as well is that it's not actually as idealistic or as simple to kind of say, you know, for the left to say, well, in the end, you've got to just pick up the pieces, provide a minimum income floor that's sufficient, that ensures people don't fall into destitution and have enough to pay for goods and services. As important as that is, and that is what Nest Living Income campaign is all about, and the policies we're going to push for are all about making sure that those 21 million people do have enough income when they need it to pay for goods and essentials. But but actually, all these things link up. And it's not a passive thing, protecting incomes from an earnings crisis, for example, from that insecurity of earnings. Actually, the two work together. One of the reasons why we've had stagnant earnings over the last decade is partly because we've had a social security system in the form of universal credit and the conditions and sanctions that get applied to that, which is designed to force people to accept the first you know, crappy job that comes their way. And if they don't accept it, they get their benefits cut. Well, it's no surprise then if employers can afford to carry on offering really poor, insecure, low-pay work, because there will always be people that are being pushed into the queue for those jobs. Whereas actually, if you started thinking about this the other way around and thinking about the safety net, not just as a form of protecting people, but actually as a, an active dynamic policy to push wages and to just say, actually, let's give power back to the unemployed. Let's give power back to people who are looking for work. So they can say no to a really crap low-pay job. They can say no, and the employer has to go back and think of a better better role on higher pay and shift that dynamic so that rather than having the unemployed competing for jobs, you have employers competing for, for workers. And that will instill a whole dynamic where employers start to invest in people, invest in productivity, invest in progression, which have knock-on benefits right across the economy. It sounds like a really brilliant campaign, and I and I was going to say if if listeners would like to get involved um, in the NF's campaign for income support, then do head over to the Living Income website. It's at livingincome.org.uk and support the the amazing work that NEF is doing on that. And Sabine, thank you so much um, for being with us as well. If people would like to also support the incredible work you're doing, how can they do that? Oh, if you could um, look at our website, www.foodaidnetwork.org.uk, that would be very welcome. And your interest and support would be very much welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And that sounds like such a good plan, Alfie, that you've just articulated in terms of changing employers' perspectives on all this. We really need employers to step up to the plate on this and for it to be seen as a partnership project in terms of changing how how we see what's right for everyone 
again, I think it's an important addition. It's really about shifting power, isn't it? And really starting to kind of challenge the way that we think about all of this and what has led us to this point. Unfortunately, that is all we've got time for on this episode of the New Economics Podcast. Alfie Sterling, Sabine Goodwin, thank you so much for being with us and for all the wisdom you shared and the important work that you do. Uh, Lovely listener, we'll be back in two weeks, don't you worry. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, believe it or not, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm still Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.